Dear Dave, I'm getting my wisdom teeth out in a few weeks. Any advice on what I can do to prepare for the surgery? Thanks, Mike Biuso, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Biff, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Oh, here we go. (laughs) You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody, it's Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. I'm here late at night at the office in the studio. Downstairs is uh, our Islands in the Stream music. Now, today they're playing country music. I- I'm, not, I'm not sure exactly what happened, but it's still loud and obnoxious. And it is 1124 at night. Obviously, there's nobody down there working, but they leave their music on all the time. Drives me nuts. I hope you can't hear it. I opened up the window because it's nice and cool tonight, and the office is really roasting. I'm kind of trying to let the cool air come in. If the train goes by, you'll get a little bit of train action. We had one come through about 20 minutes ago, so I don't know if there'll be another one yet tonight. I wanted to, and I hope this isn't too lazy of me, I wanted to go through our mailbag uh, we have a thing on our membership site, strongtowns.us, for members to submit a question. And actually, this is one of those things that arose kind of too, because I literally was getting inundated with people sending me questions and things to try to answer. And being a Minnesotan, I was kind of conscientious about trying to answer them all. And, and I wound up <laughs> there would be days where I would spend all day just simply doing email. Jim, our executive director, has been a godsend in that regard and has taken a, a lot of that off my plate. But we still wanted to have a place where people could go submit questions and we would get them an answer. Some of these have been in my inbox since, I'm ashamed to say, since April. It is August 7th today as I'm doing this. So I'm a little bit behind on a few of these. But I wanted to try to go through them and answer a few of them today. I have to say, there's one in here that starts out, hi there, Strong Towns, here's a short question, and then, I'm not joking you, it's got to be 800 words after that. (laughs) I'm not going to read that one, but I will read a couple of these other ones and uh, hopefully empty out the mailbag and get people some answers to some burning questions, and hopefully we'll all learn a little bit in the process. Here's one from Chris, and I don't have the location, and I'm not reading last names, Chris, you'll have to know who you are based on what you said here. From Chris, when calculating property value per acre, the Taco Johns and Walmarts come out lower than the small cafes and pizza parlors in downtown areas. But the Taco Johns and Walmarts provide their own parking. The small cafes depend on someone else providing the parking, either private parking lot owners or the city in public lots, parking garages, and parking spaces on the street. Shouldn't a few parking spaces be assigned to these small shops? That would bring their value down some, but not as low as the sprawl stores with vast unused parking areas. Chris, I think this is a a fair insight. I think this is a very fair insight from where we're at today. I don't know exactly how you would do that calculation. I know how you would do it mathematically. I just, the assumption behind it, you know, how many parking spots in a public street would you apply to to this or that? There's a couple of mitigating factors, though, that I want to throw in here. First, 
the street's going to be there either way. The street's in both cases. When we get to the stuff on the periphery, the stuff out by Walmart, the streets are just as wide. You're just not allowed to park on them. You can go out to those places and see the wide sweeping curves and the very wide streets. You're not allowed to park on them. It's not like we're spending less money out there on the edge where people have got their parking lot. We're actually spending more money per foot often than we do when we build urban areas. In a sense, you are accounting for the same amount of asphalt. You're just using it differently when you have lower speeds and a neighborhood design. I think the other mitigating factor is the fact that in areas where you have the shops, you have a lot of people that don't arrive by car. And while I think you can make the case that there's some allowance for that, we really have to have a, a development approach focused on getting people to these places outside of their automobiles. Long term, I think ideally you would have most of your traffic in that type of an environment and that type of a space and that type of a store, not arriving by automobile, but arriving in other ways. The other part that I would add is that I think that cities, if they're going to be in the parking business, by that I mean not only on-street parking, but also building the big ramps and building the parking lots, when they don't do that at a cost, in other words, when they're just going to give that away, I don't know as that is something that we can turn around and essentially charge in a value per acre category, uh, some type of factor to businesses. Yes, the businesses probably want it. Yes, the businesses probably benefit from it. But I would argue that if you're not charging for parking, you're doing a disservice economically, not only to your taxpayers and your communities, but to actually to those businesses at the end of the day as well. We should be charging for parking. Parking should not be free. If you have free parking, you generally have too much parking. What we're trying to get to is a place where parking would essentially pay for itself or not be the lost leader that it is today to try to compete with the places out on the edge. But parking would be something that there would be enough demand, enough people coming in and out, enough desire to be in those places where people would be willing to pay for parking as a part of taking part and being there. Good question. I don't know as I provided a really great answer, but uh, you kind of see where my mind is. Number two here is from Dan. Is that a photo of Galena, Illinois as the header background image? Are there many other places that still look like that? Yes, that is Galena, Illinois. And no, there aren't a lot of places that look like that, particularly not in the Midwest, in the Illinois area. I don't know of any in the Midwest, I don't know any really west of the Appalachians that look like Galena, Illinois. Maybe there are some. Maybe there are a few places here and there that have kept bits of that. But Galena, Illinois is just a gorgeous, beautiful, beautiful place. You can go out east to some cities, and they still have some of those bones, and they still have some of that character, and you can still find parts of town that look like that. But no, I'm I'm not aware of any. Maybe some of our readers and listeners will know of some and can submit some for us to, to take a look at. But uh, no, I don't know of any place that's quite like Galena. This one's from Rick. Kind of a little outside of my wheelhouse, but we'll give it a try anyway. Interested in thoughts on Keystone XL and the absurdity of focusing on oil exports while burning off incredible amounts of natural gas. Seems like there should be a crash program to create pipelines to feed directly to every major location that has a coal-firing utility. I have a satellite image showing burn-off of natural gas lighting up as bright as areas of the East Coast. 
is the federal government missing an opportunity to improve environment and lower consumer energy costs? Let me just deal with that last question. I don't pretend to be an energy policy expert. There was a a really great book called Energy for Future Presidents, The Science Behind the Headlines. It's written by a guy named Richard A. Muller. And I thought this was a fantastic book. It taught me a ton about natural gas and really about the energy situation in this country. Natural gas is something that right now we have a glut of, in a sense. We have prices really, really low. There is no real international market for us to trade in natural gas. And so what happens a lot when we can't consume it and we can't store it and we can't move it around, we just wind up flaring it off. We just wind up burning it. This was done in early oil exploration. Natural gas was kind of like the unwanted byproduct. And until people figured out that we could actually use it for energy, it was just wasted. I mean, we, we wasted tons and tons of natural gas over the decades. It's really unfathomable how much we've just burned off and gotten nothing for it. It seems a tragedy today to continue to do that. And, and I suspect that, you know, in an ideal world, that would all be captured and something would be done with it. I, I know that there are efforts going on right now to try to, and, and this comes from the whole Ukraine issue that's going on right now in Eastern Europe uh, with Russia. A lot of natural gas flows through Ukraine. A lot of oil flows through Ukraine to Europe. And the notion is that you know, Ukraine is always going to be held hostage to Russia until Europe itself can develop its own energy independence. They don't do fracking to the degree that we do in Europe and so are not able to unleash the natural gas that we are here. As part of that process, the idea then is that if we can find a way to liquefy the natural gas, put it on a big tanker, send it over there, that somehow we can alter the marketplace for natural gas in Europe, and that will have all these geopolitical implications. Great. And really, there's some very intelligent people that are betting huge sums of money that this is a possibility, that this is something that can happen, that this is something that will come to fruition. I wouldn't be one of them. And I can tell you that 0% of my portfolio is, you know, wrapped up in this kind of thing. I right now am not invested in anything in the energy sector, largely because I don't trust the finances and the economics behind it. If we step back, this whole question began with the XL pipeline. And in a related vein, all of the drilling that's going on right now with the fracking revolution. And while I think from a technology standpoint, there's a lot of innovative things. There's a lot of things that we can step back and the people who say, well, you know, people with ingenuity will figure out a way to get this stuff done. To a degree, you know, that is actually happening. And that theory of the world is being played out. A lot of people said we would be out of oil. And now all of a sudden, we've come up with this new approach and we're able to get energy out of the ground in places where we haven't been able to get energy out of the ground before. Step back, though, and look at what is taking place around that. There's two things that are really critical to note. The first is that energy prices are still high. 
Natural gas prices are low, but remember, natural gas is a byproduct of this whole process. We wouldn't be doing this drilling for natural gas. We would be doing this drilling to get the oil, the crude, the stuff that we can transform into things we can burn in our car today. That price, the crude price, has been over $100 a barrel for a long time. It's been you know in that $100, $100 plus range for quite a while. That is a high price. And, and I suspect, you know, this is me. I don't know. These are complex international markets. I suspect there's a floor now on that price where we're just not going to go below that. In order for us to go below that, economies would have to crash because right now oil is traded on a global market. There's enough global demand out there where I think if the prices start to drop, other parts of the world are going to pick up that demand and bump the price right back up. I think there's a floor right now on energy prices. But that means that we're going to have high energy prices indefinitely into the future. We're going to, you know, we're at $350 to $4 gas. We're not going to go lower than that ever again. We're likely to go much, much higher. Those prices being necessary to support the ongoing drilling. Here's the second part of this that I think is tied in with that higher energy prices as long as the eye can see. And that is this. We have had really cheap, really loose money for a a long, long time. Uh, I think you could say going back to the mid nineties, but certainly, you know, or even earlier than that, but certainly since 2008, we've had 0% interest rates. We've had the Federal Reserve pumping money into our financial system. If you are someone running an oil operation out in North Dakota, you are finding it very easy to get capital to do what you want to do. Capital at very cheap rates without a lot of questions being asked. One of the red flags that came up for me recently was some consolidation that's now going on in the oil drilling industry. Generally, consolidation is not something that happens when everybody's making a ton of money. If everybody's making a ton of money and essentially we're out kind of prospecting and everybody's kind of rushing to get their place and, and there's so much money being made and so much oil to pump uh, that you can't hardly go wrong. No one's looking to consolidate with other people to cut costs, to leverage, you know, your debt differently. All the things that go along with consolidation. All of a sudden now we're starting to see consolidation in this market. And to me, it's one of those signs that the things that I suspect are going on in terms of robbing Peter to pay Paul in the way a lot of this stuff is financed is starting to kind of run itself out. I would not, if I'm the federal government, and let's get back to the question, you know, is the federal government missing an opportunity here? In a sense, we're missing an opportunity by burning all this natural gas off without anything productive to do with it. Is the answer to that to run massive, massive infrastructure, whether, you know, up to Canada through the XL pipeline, out to North Dakota, through uh, Pennsylvania and down to Texas, in order to capture all the stuff that's being burned off and feed it to centralized energy production facilities for a cheaper, greener fuel source. To me, the answer to that is clearly no. I, I don't think that that is justified. I'm not a big fan of centralized power. I think the future of electric production is going to be decentralized electric production and decentralized transmission facilities. 
I think pumping more money and putting even more capital into reinforcing the centralized model that we have is the exact wrong way to go. The reason why I found this question kind of interesting is because there's a certain logic to the answer. I mean, look, we're wasting all of this fuel. We need it desperately. Why are we not doing something differently? Federal government step in and fix it. Yet, I think by the federal government stepping in and fixing it, they actually run the risk, the very real risk, and I think the strong likelihood of reinforcing a really destructive model of energy production that is going to, in a sense, work itself out and get us to a future where our energy is going to be more produced locally, more decentralized, and ultimately better for people and better for the environment. Let me move on. Harold submits this question. After a few years overseas, I've returned and started a new job working for the state health department as injury prevention safety program lead. I'm looking now to help both state and local health agencies move me from traditional individual client-focused safety approaches, such as car seats and bike helmets, to more of a systems approach to community safety. Do any of you know of any blueprint-like listings of evidence-based programs along the line suitable for local government and NGO agencies? Wow. I guess the short answer is no, I, I don't. And I don't because I'm, I'm not, I mean, this is not a community that I'm really involved in, but does that mean I have no thoughts on this? Absolutely not. I'm reading right now a book. I'm actually almost done with it. It's a book that was recommended to me by Ben Hamilton Bailey. If you've been listening to the podcast, you heard an interview I did with him on shared space at CNU in Buffalo. He recommended this book by a guy named John Adams, and the book is called Risk. It is one of the more utterly fascinating books I've ever read. I just finished a chapter on seatbelts. And, you know, he says very clearly, if you get in an accident, you're better off having a seatbelt than not. But the question of whether seatbelts save lives is not a very clear one. You know, we can talk about the same things in terms of car seats and bike helmet giveaways. Let's explore the seatbelt thing and then circle back around to those. Do seatbelts save lives? His argument, and he's got some really great statistics that back this up, is that when people wear seatbelts, yes, they're more likely to survive an accident, but they're also more likely to get in an accident because through something called risk compensation, they now feel safer when they're driving. And when they feel safer, a lot of the risks that they weren't willing to take when they didn't have a seatbelt, they now are willing to take. This may be subtle little risks, but it also may be greater risks. I think if we circle back around to the issue of a car seat, it's very clear that the most dangerous thing you can do for a child today is put them in a car. Put them in a car and drive them anywhere. You are engaging in the riskiest behavior that children engage in today. It's more risky than child abductions. It's more risky than drowning. I had a, a sister-in-law that used to you know, cut up grapes for her four and five-year-old kids into tiny little pieces. Sweet woman. I love her a lot, but I'm like, that's totally crazy. Yet, you know, she and we, you know, my wife and I continuously load our kids in the car and drive them around all the time. We'd run to the store. We'd run to the park. Uh, we'd run to the beach. We'd run wherever we needed to go. We'd just throw them in the car and go. 
we had a, essentially a false sense of security born out of the fact that we could put them in a car seat. The car seat was government recommended, government inspected, government approved. There were all kinds of people telling us, you need to have a car seat. If you go to the safety boards for the state that's set up, you look on their website, it'll say, make sure you have your car seat buckled up safely. Make sure you do it the right way. Make sure you have your kid in there. Nobody ever talks about reducing the amount we drive. Car seats are only rated for collisions of up to 35 miles an hour. You get in a car accident at 45 miles an hour, your car seat's not... I'm not saying it's not going to help you, but it's not doing what you think it's doing. It's certainly not going to save your child. We do have a totally backward approach. What I have called and what I put in my first book, Thoughts on Building Strong Towns, I called it padding and body armor. Uh, We think that padding and body armor will save us. And what padding... And body armor actually does is make us less risk averse and make us more willing to take subtle risks. And in aggregate, this actually costs as just as many accidents, if not more, than the actual legislation to put kids in seatbelts, put kids in child seats, uh, force people to wear helmets and that type of thing. Do I know of anyone who's doing this differently? I don't. I, I don't. And, and I suspect that the reason I don't is not only because there aren't people doing it differently, but because, you know, as probably evidenced by three-fourths or, or more of you listening to this, the things that I've just said are absolutely heretical. Chuck, you're suggesting we not wear seatbelts. Chuck, you're suggesting we not wear helmets. Let me answer that question by saying, in a sense, yes, I am suggesting that. But let me put a little nuance on that. I think when you're on a highway, I think when you're driving on a high-speed, high-capacity interstate-type system where you're going from one place to another, yeah, I think, you know, wear a seatbelt. It's a different style of environment. It is an environment that, in an ideal sense, has a lot of the things that would cause an accident eliminated. And in a sense, there's not a lot of room for you to compensate for the gain in safety by taking on additional risk. But as soon as you enter a city, and I'm going to quote Ben Hamilton Bailey for a second. He said this to me off air. And maybe I shouldn't have said that he said this, but I think I've told this story before. So, you know, sorry, Ben. He said, as soon as you enter the city, something should happen. Your car should alert yourself that you've entered the city. Your seatbelt should disengage, should come off of you. You should have a a little knife that comes out from the steering wheel and sits about two inches from your chest. If we did that, what we would be doing is essentially balancing the risk that you place on others, notably pedestrians and bikers, and balancing that risk with the risk that you take on yourself. In a sense, you would be very aware of the risk now because you knew that if you got in an accident at, you know, whatever mile per hour, five, 10, 15 miles an hour, that you were going to suffer some injury. The injury wouldn't just be to somebody else, not you. And so because of your awareness of that, you're going to drive different. You're going to behave differently. You're going to have a different awareness and a different understanding of the environment that you are in. Obviously, that's never going to happen. And the suggestion, while there's a certain logic to it in just a pure logic sense, from a practical you know, standpoint, it is just insane. It's, it's, it's ludicrous to suggest that a knife come out of the seat and, and point you know, at your chest. 
I suspect that this is why nobody's doing this because it is really easy. You know, I go to my wife and, and it's really easy to explain to her that our kids should be in child seats. It's a lot more difficult to explain, you know, we shouldn't be driving at all. I think that if I'm in your position, Harold, and I'm running uh, this type of a program, the systems approach that I take is to encourage people to get out of their cars. I would focus on the number of children, the number of individuals that are killed in just routine driving day in and day out, and let people know that the safest thing they can do is get out of their car and not take nearly as many trips. If you can cut down on the number of trips, you're cutting down on the unnecessary risks that you're taking. And from a public health and safety standpoint, I can think of no more effective thing than that. All right. We've got two questions here that are very similar. One is from our friend Elias. A town of 30,000 has a school board, happily living in the 1980s, it seems. The board's vision includes consolidating several schools, closing others, building a new high school, while cutting back on arts and music programs. Gosh, don't I know this story. Community opposition has come together, but we want to crowdsource an alternative plan for schools rather than just wave our pitchforks in the air. We're hoping people might give us some help in doing this. Are there principles of strong towns or resources out there? Another similar question comes from Seth, similar in that it's about schools as well. Chuck, I know you're planning to make a trip out to New England. We're actually doing two trips out to New England this uh, fall, details to follow. I'd like to ask you if you could add a module on school funding to your curbside chat. One of the biggest impediments to lean infill housing development is the constant drumbeat of no more school children, no more traffic. New England as a region and Boston in particular are struggling with an undersupply of housing, particularly multifamily housing close to walkable areas. Yet when you try to suggest infill development, it's all our schools are collapsing. We can't take anyone else. I'm thinking you might be able to do a data analysis on this school aspect of strong towns. Let's talk a little bit about schools. I think there's a couple of really important things that go on when we just bring up schools in general. And that is that schools have not only a physical aspect to them, uh, but they have a real strong cultural aspect to them. Particularly when, you know, we get down to the community, the, the neighborhood level. People are very connected to the schools. And even when they don't have kids that go there, even when they are not maybe directly interacting with the school on a periodic basis, there's a deep connection to schools. Schools have athletic programs. They have arts programs. They have music programs. They have community outreach kind of programs. There's activity going on at the school that's very visible often. There's a lot of things that go on at a school that culturally impact a community. I think a lot of times we discount that. And we discount it because, for the most part, people making decisions about schools are a different subset of people than are people making decisions about our communities. There are some cities where the city council is the school board, or there's some overlap there where the city has jurisdiction over the school. But for the most part, the school board is a completely separate entity and a completely separate group than the people who are making planning decisions about the community. I think one of the most important things that we need to do as advocates for strong towns is bridge that gap, that gap right there. 
we need to help our school officials see that they are, in a sense, developers within our community. And that as a developer, they need to have a relationship. I've been reading Star Wars with my daughters lately, so I have the word symbiotic in my brain. There's a symbiotic relationship back and forth between the school and the neighborhood that it's in. We need to educate those school officials. We also need to, as strong town advocates, let our city officials know that they can't ignore the school. They have to be involved in what goes on at the school. And even if it seems like, you know, putting your nose in someone else's business, getting involved in someone else's thing, the school is part of your community. And as soon as you have a school doing something completely different on a totally different path, there's not much that you can do as a city to derail that and stop that. You need to get involved early. You need to get involved often. You need to have a really, really deep collaboration back and forth between the two to make these things work. Let's talk about these two specific questions. The, the one about the school closing and cutting back and wanting to consolidate a bunch of schools out on the edge while, you know, cutting back on all the other programs and stuff. It's really fascinating to me because a lot of times these school districts will come forward with these plans to do this type of consolidation and they will come from their facilities people and their facilities people will come in with all those spreadsheets and all the cost projections and they'll show it is less costly sometimes not by huge margins, but by significant margins, it is less costly for us to build and operate this school site here than it is to retrofit and fix and upgrade and operate this older school site over here. There's always, and I'm saying I have looked at dozens of these, this has been a perennial flaw in all of them. They always discount transportation. They do not consider in any way, shape, matter, or form, transportation costs. So, for example, in my school district here, we built a 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th grade campus way out on the edge of the community. When we did it, we closed the 7th, 8th grade school. We closed the 6th, 7th grade school. We closed one other elementary school as well. And, you know, the idea was the net savings of closing these places was going to be made up by having this nicer facility, this better facility, you know, shinier, fancier, more bells and whistles, and it would be cheaper long-term to operate. Now, all of a sudden, instead of having these three neighborhood schools where a huge majority of the students could get there by walking, get there by biking, did not have to be bused. And those that did need to be bused, a lot of them did not need to be bused very far at all. Now, all of a sudden, every single student needs to be bused. Every single student. My family, uh, the farm I grew up on out in rural Baxter is actually right across the street from where this new school is. My family, my parents' house is actually the closest house to this new school. We look out the front window and can see this new school campus and all the things that are there. You could walk from my parents' house to the school. You could walk. You could make that walk. In the wintertime, particularly, where the trail has not been snowplowed, the sidewalk has not been snowplowed, certainly the path that you would normally walk, the straight line that would be about a 1,000 feet through 
the athletic fields and stuff to get to the front door is not going to have been plowed. You're not going to make that walk. Uh, there are very, very few people that would make that walk. That's the closest house to the school. So essentially, we built a school in a place where every single person would need to walk. Now, we did this when gas was less than $2 a gallon, right? Now that gas is approaching $4 a gallon and has bumped up. The school district has had a lot of problems with budgeting in terms of busing. The state does no help. Here in Minnesota, bus budgets are separate. Transportation budgets are separate than school budgets. And so what winds up happening is the transportation budget is looked at as just kind of lost money. If we don't spend it, we lose it. So we might as well spend all that we can. We can't transfer it in and put it over into the classroom. At the end of the day, when prices go up, what winds up happening is that we wind up taking money out of the classroom and putting it into busing. And if you had factored in transportation up front, you would have realized very easily that the neighborhood schools made much more sense financially than these huge campuses out on the periphery of the community. There's another aspect here that I think is important. And I'm going to throw this one out there. I know it's not universal. I know there's going to be some people who are listening to this and say, gosh, you know, that's not me. And, and I'm maybe uncomfortable with that whole line of conversation. I think it's something we need to be aware of. There's a certain kind of built in incentive for really anybody who runs a government organization. But I, I think when we get into superintendents and facilities administrators and school boards, it's very prevalent there. There's a certain built-in incentive all throughout this conversation to abandon the old and build the new. Not only is it an easier sell, I think, to people, you know, look, we're going to get this brand new facility. Ours out here has these great athletic fields. It's got a school forest. It's got a planetarium. It's got this great gym facility with a running track and all this stuff. It's got all the bells and whistles. And that's a really great thing to be able to sell to people when you're asking them for, you know, a district wide bond referendum. But if you are a superintendent who can say on their resume for their next job, look, I piloted this $40 million bond issue through the whole conversation with the community. I got it approved. I was there when the whole thing was built and, and I oversaw this process. If you're a superintendent, if you're a facilities person, if you are a principal, if you are a, a member of the school board, that's a real resume enhancer, right? If you are the consultant making the recommendation, it is a lot less risky for you, a lot more lucrative for you to come forward with a recommendation that builds the brand new facility than takes and kind of nickels and dimes and tries to make some renovations to the existing facilities. There's a whole different cost structure there. And when the money comes from a bond referendum, it flows free and loose and everybody makes off pretty well. When it comes through a, a different approach, things tend to be a, a lot tighter and you get a, a lot different relationship with the consultants and the other people who are working for you. At the end of the day, a lot of those incentives bear into the recommendations that we get to build these really huge facilities. I think we have to be aware of that. There's some ways that you know, I'm not suggesting superintendents are bad people. I'm not suggesting that consultants are bad people. But I do think that there should be some stewardship of getting disassociated, disinterested parties 
to weigh in and make opinions on some of these things, particularly when you're in the early planning phases of what to do. In terms of Seth's question on infill housing and people resisting it because the schools are overwhelmed and, uh, you know, the neighborhoods are overwhelmed and we can't take any more. I understand that in theory, but I don't understand it in one of those deep intellectual ways. And, and I certainly don't understand it in the sense that I've really experienced that conversation. When we have overpacked schools, uh, when we have schools that are busting at the seams, the question that I have is, what did people used to do when this happened? I was on a charter school board here for a couple years. In fact, there was a, a local charter school that was starting up. I thought it was important to have some school choices for people in this community, and I agreed to serve on that school board. I wound up being board chair for kind of a quirk of fate for a year and served on the board for two years in total. It was a really great experience. We wound up starting this school in a strip mall. We wound up putting in a preschool, kindergarten, first, second, third, and fourth grade classrooms in a, a retrofitted strip mall. It was next to a park area. There was a little bit of green space. There was a abandoned or a downsized VA facility across the parking lot that had a, a large kind of warehouse building where we went in and carpeted it and turned it into like a recreation area for kids to use during the winter months. We made it work. And, you know, I, I've spent some time in uh, Brooklyn in some of the Hasidic communities there working with them on a couple projects. And I think one of the things that has fascinated me about them is how they, despite the overcrowding, make a lot of this stuff work. They find the nooks and crannies. They find the storefronts. They find the places to, to make not just the schools, but all the other things that go along with their culture. They, they find places to make this stuff work. I think a lot of times the constraints that we have on making it work are things that we either do ourselves through regulation for the best of intentions, but you know, limitations on the size of the building requirements for the amount of square footage. These are all things we do out of wanting the best for kids. I don't know as we're getting the best outcome for kids though, when we put those kind of restrictions on a lot of the reasons that we can't maybe be more flexible are also cultural while we find it very easy to start this Montessori school in this strip mall and get enough people to come to attend to make it a viable place that worked real well, the strip mall part of it was a hurdle for a lot of people. I mean, they, they were used to a school facility and, you know, particularly from the outside, this didn't feel like a school facility. Uh, we had to get people in, get them into the classrooms, get them to meet the teachers, break down some of those preconceived barriers of what this site and this location was in order for people to buy into it and, and get involved. You know, but I, I think in a, especially in a public school setting, a lot of those opportunities we don't consider and we leave out because they just seem socially and culturally not acceptable. These are good conversations. 
at the end of the day, I, I think you're right, Seth. I mean, we absolutely need the infill. We absolutely need the development. We need the investment in our communities. If your community is not maturing incrementally over time, it is preparing to die. We need a, a constant maturing process. I would say throughout all these neighborhoods, we need to look around at what the neighborhoods that are in the next step up in development have done to accommodate the school growth and see what we can learn from that. If you are, you know, Boston, maybe you need to look at neighborhoods in New York that are slightly more intense and say, how have they been able to accommodate schools and learning within their neighborhoods? And, you know, what, what are the things that we can do to upgrade to that? I spent some time in Italy and got to know a few teachers there. And it was, again, fascinating to me, not only the style of education that they have, which is very different than ours, but also the way that they set up and run and manage their schools. They don't have huge campuses the way we do. They don't have the facilities lined up the way they do, but they do a really good job educating kids. And they do a really good job of addressing their needs. I think we have to look around at other models and see what we can learn from them. Because... If we don't make these investments in infill, if we don't make these investments in improving our neighborhoods, we're not going to have the money to run good schools. It's a little bit of a catch-22. All right, moving on. Question from Marielle, who I believe I met. I believe this is Marielle from St. Louis. I believe you and I met when I was in Illinois, and I'm going to be, speaking of places I'm going to be later this year, I know I'm going to be in St. Louis as well. A town in my region converted travel lanes to bike lanes on a residential collector with a planted median and two lanes in each direction. Okay. Now the street has one car lane in each direction and the bike lanes are up to 10 feet wide. Wow. The street is getting repaved and the city engineer wants to put rumble strips along the edge of the bike lane to prevent driver encroachment in the bike lane. This seems to have been documented twice. The engineer argues that he has done the research I'm sure. There are no documented cases of bicycles crashing due to rumble strips. It's just a perception problem. These rumble strips will be more narrow and shallow than the typical highway rumble strip. The area is one of the most expensive in the whole region, and some of the houses on this street are valued over a million dollars. The streets probably generate enough revenue to pay for high-visibility buffers or even bollards. Absolutely, no question. How can I convince the city engineer that rumble strips are inappropriate in this context? Oh, my gosh. You know, rumble strips are great. Rumble strips are fantastic. When you're talking about a rural roadway where you have two-way travel and oncoming traffic four feet away from you, rumble strips are a lifesaver. I should go back to my risk compensation theory from John Adams. But my guess is that, you know, in that type of a setting, rumble strips have done an awful lot to make drivers more aware and alert and save a lot of accidents, particularly probably single car accidents. I know this hasn't happened to me recently, but I know a decade or more ago, sometimes when I was running myself a little more ragged than I do today, fatigue driving was an issue for me. And particularly when I had the thyroid problem, geez, I remember that now, just being really tired driving. And there were a couple of times where I would find myself hitting that rumble strip in the center of the road and having it kind of wake me up and go, wow, that freaked me out. And I really need to do something different here. But rumble strips in an urban setting, I can't imagine. 
I suspect what the engineer is doing is trying to indicate to the driver that, look, you're crossing an area that you're not supposed to cross if you go into this obnoxiously huge bike lane. I think there's a lot better ways to do that and a lot better ways to give that signal, particularly because I think having the rumble strips and getting back to John Adams and the risk compensation, I think having the rumble strips, you have a really high likelihood that drivers would start to become aware of that and say, okay, well now we own this lane and I'm going to, I'm going to drive a little bit faster here. Even rumble strips are for highways. I mean, let's just put it that way. And if we're not going to do bollards and we're not going to do some other type of thing that would more separate that lane, what I would do is I would take that really, really wide bike lane and I would take the, you know, the inside three or four feet and I would make it a crosshatch. Instead of having the rumble strips there, I would just make it a really wide crosshatched area. You know, with a yellow crosshatch or a white crosshatch, I guess, that just signified to the drivers, look, this is not an area that you're supposed to cross. That would be cheaper than bollards. It would, you would not have the snow plowing issues that you would have with bollards if you did that. It would be something that would be even cheaper than rumble strips to do. And it wouldn't affect your ability to bike through there in any way. Do I think that's optimal? No. Let me read this again. The street is getting repaved. So a, a repaving is different than a reconstruction. If you were doing a reconstruction, you would want to actually fix the width of the road. You'd want to move the curbs in. Uh, you would want to change some of those things so that you didn't have such an awkward design. But short of that, I, I think you can do a lot more with paint a lot more effectively than rumble strips. Tell your engineer to get on a bike and drive around on some rumble strips and see what that's like. Engineers that are designing bike facilities should actually use bike facilities before they design them. Last question. This has actually gone a little bit faster than I thought it would, so we're doing pretty good on time. This one is from Richard, and I'm sorry, you know, this one is now a little bit dated. In Missouri, we have a three-quarter sales tax for transportation on the ballot August 5th, it lasts 10 years and forbids raising the gas tax and tolls. The money can be spent on other modes than roads and bridges, though. Judging from the project list, it'll be overwhelmingly road and bridge. Missouri ranks just after Minnesota, yay, on total lane miles of roads and streets and has more state roads than Illinois and Kansas combined. Wow. Here's the ProTax website and their claims. How would you refute them? Interestingly enough, and, and Richard and I have chatted back and forth on this, and I actually did wind up blogging about a number of these things. Just this past week, that amendment did go down to defeat by fairly wide and significant margins. At the end of the day, I think that this conversation and really all the conversations we're having around transportation systems has to ask a, a fundamental question. How do we determine where to spend our resources? What is the thing that gives us the signal that a project is a good and worthy project? That is the thing we have completely messed up. I'll just point to the issue of congestion as being one that is so subjective as to actually become almost bizarre. Here in my hometown of Brainerd, Minnesota, 
we just spent $9.2 million a couple of years ago taking the southern shortcut around town and converting it from a two-lane to a four-lane. This shortcut ran next to the junior college, and it connected up to the high school. During school days, there are periods of time when you have the school buses going through and everybody trying to make 8 o'clock class as a peak issue. Uh, you have about 10 or 15 minutes each day where there's a peak issue. And particularly when you're making left turns across traffic, it becomes really, really problematic for that like 15 minutes, right? People call that congestion. People were saying, you know, we have horrible congestion. It's a just an awful congestion problem. The tyranny of congestion. We're suffering under all this congestion and we need to spend $9.2 million to put in two more lanes so that we can rid ourselves of this oppressive congestion. Of course, for the, you know, 23 hours and 40 minutes a day where there's no cars at all or very little cars, we don't remark that as being over capacity. We just say, okay, well, we don't have congestion now, but we, we've dealt with the horrible, awful congestion that we've had. You can go two hours south of where we're at today and you can try to drive into Minneapolis, St. Paul on a Monday morning. And, you know, some days traffic flows relatively smoothly, but there are other days you get a little bit of rain, you get a little bit of snow where it can take hours and you will sit in bumper to bumper traffic and things will move incredibly slow. And you have, which by any standard is uh, a certain amount of traffic congestion. You can then bop on over to Chicago. And I've been in Chicago a number of times where you just sit there. I mean, you just... I don't even know what the hell is going on, but literally, you know, so many cars are trying to get on the highway at once that I've sat in one spot for an hour and had no accident, no, you know, nothing that was an impediment, just the fact that there were so many cars being forced on or, or, or desiring at that point to get on the main highways. See the same thing in LA when I've been out there and experienced it, this is heavy, heavy, heavy congestion. If you ask people in all these areas to rate their congestion on a scale of 1 to 10, all these people would rate it as a 10 during those peak times, even though the experience is dramatically different. And from a mathematical standpoint, the flow of traffic is dramatically different, right? How do we determine what a good project is? The way we do now is that everybody gets their share. We create these project lists. We spread out the money. Every district gets a little bit. Uh, politicians weigh in, decide, you know, what project's going to be elevated over another project. I've heard our DOT officials complain in this state that they'll try to put together these project lists of our priorities. And then, you know, a congressperson will come in and say, uh, well, we're going to give you an earmark of, a hundred million dollars for this project that will be, let's say, 10th on the list. And there's nine more worthy projects, but all of a sudden, uh, you have a 50% match on the 10th and you're forced to take money from the top nine and allocate it to that 10th or you're going to lose the match and not only lose the match from the federal government, but you're going to tick off your congressman who you need to support your next project. So what you do is you abandon the top nine and you do number 10. That happens all the time, all the time all the time. None of these are really good arguments to refute the claims that the pro people made and and made unsuccessfully. I'm really not a politician and I really don't know as I can enunciate 
uh, real clearly a compelling kind of political narrative as to why we need to change our system. But at the end of the day, when we have no price discovery, when we have no price that regulates supply and demand, everybody's going to want huge supply and no one's going to want to pay for it. Think of this. Let's say that the federal government ran Delta Airlines or Delta Airlines was going to run the same way that we ran our highway systems. What Delta Airlines would do is they would go out and they would have enough planes, they would have enough capacity to be able to serve everybody on the day before Thanksgiving and you know the couple days before Christmas. They would be able to serve every single person that wanted to fly uh, with full service, everybody that wanted first class, everybody that wanted business upgrade, everybody would be able to get a seat. The traffic would flow smoothly. Uh, you'd get in and out quickly. Everything would go wonderfully and it would work great on those peak congested days. And the price would be really, really, really low, right? Then on every other day throughout the rest of the year, the price would be equally as low. In other words, you wouldn't pay a premium to ride in those premium times. The price would be low all the time. And you would have just a whole bunch of extra capacity. You'd be flying planes that would have nobody on them or one or two people on them because the rest of the time it wasn't, you know, it wasn't being used at all, but you had to have it designed for that peak time. We would look at that and say, that's insane, right? We don't expect when we go flying to pay the same, oh, here does come the train. We don't expect when we go flying to pay the same the day before Thanksgiving that we pay two weeks before Thanksgiving, right? Before we, my wife and I had kids, we used to vacation all the time in October and November. Why? Because you could go all kinds of places and it was really, really cheap. Now that we have kids and we're stuck to a school schedule, we got to go when everybody else does and we got to pay premium prices. Why? Because that's when everybody else is going. Here comes a train. That one's headed toward Duluth to unload a bunch of coal. Cool. The way we run our transportation system has no supply-demand price mechanism. Uh, you don't pay for congestion except with your time. There's no way for us to determine how much people are willing to pay to get out of congestion because you know people pay with their time and you know, there's there's no way that we're able to really monetize that except theoretically. I'm an advocate of a congestion pricing approach. I wrote a big, long blog earlier this year called The World-Class Transportation System where I talked about how uh, we can take the existing interstate system and the existing gas tax and use it to maintain essentially a base capacity and then have a congestion pricing system that would be a signal to us where we have more demand than we're meeting currently with the capacity we have and then would fund that demand with the prices that people were willing to pay. I think that that's a system that intellectually I can get behind and I think intellectually people could support. Certainly when I sit down and talk to people about it, it makes sense to them. Whether we can put that on a ballot and a referendum and have people vote for it I don't know. And whether we can use that to refute kind of the crazy stuff that has been proposed, not just in Missouri, but in Texas and here in Minnesota and other states across the country where they're having similar debates, I don't know that either. If I were a politician, I would, you know, be in politics. 
the last thing I am as a politician. Whatever you did in Missouri to defeat this thing worked. Uh, hopefully we can learn a little bit from that. Thanks, everybody. This has been really fun. You're going to let me sleep a little bit better tonight now because I feel like I've cleaned out the mailbag and I'm not being derelict in my duties anymore to people who have submitted questions. If you've got a question, go to strongtowns.us, log in. If you're not a member, sign up to become a member. If you are a member, log in. And uh, down on the right there in the menu bar, there's Ask a Question. They come right to my mailbox. And uh, if I don't write about it on the blog, I'll talk about it here. Thanks, everybody. You take care out there and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.